Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides to John chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 27. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, Zach and I chuckled this morning because it was only a few minutes before service that we realized that independently of one another, we had both come up with a sardine story for our, uh, for what we had to do this morning in the service. And, uh, sardines, unlike Zach and his amateur group, although didn't it help you to understand, Zach, the massive head wound? It's like, oh, that's what happened to Zach. As I was growing up, sardines was, uh, we take it very seriously. It was intense. Like if there was an international competition of sardines, uh, my youth group could have competed. And we would, we would go to great lengths to find hiding places that could not possibly be conceived of as hiding places. Not only because there was the thrill of never being found, right? That was the trump. If you were playing sardines and no one ever found you, that was truly a, an accomplishment. But then when people did find you, the tighter the spot, the more people you tried to fit in, the more ridiculous it became. And if you're not familiar with sardines, that's what makes it different than hide-and-go-seek. When you find the person, you hide with them. It becomes harder and harder to conceal the group as it grows. And then the last person who finds the group is the loser and is it for the next round. Well, one season we were on a retreat. Uh, We were at a a nice kind of, it's like a big cabin way out in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. Someone had graciously let us use their property. And so my best friend and I, it was our turn to hide, and we, we headed out and we headed into this old garage barn that was on the edge of the property. And, of course, it was pitch black, and we couldn't turn any lights on because that would disclose what, where we were intending to hide to those people down counting down the hill. And so we're climbing around in the dark and realized that it seems like the person who owned the property had stored lumber up in the rafters of the garage. And so we were climbing up, trying to get into the smallest crevice possible up in there to remain hidden. And my friend, uh, at one point, uh, somewhat startled, said, said, Ryan, I think I'm sitting on... And there was a huge crack and a very large crash... And from somewhere down below on the floor of the barn came a small voice that said styrofoam. 
And it had, he had been sitting on styrofoam and it had cracked and he had plummeted to the bottom of the barn. And we, I think we gave up that round of sardines after his injury. Jesus says, now that story is kind of fun, but it does point out the difficulty of living, walking, existing, doing anything in darkness. Jesus says, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Verse 36, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What does that mean? What does it mean to believe in the light? What does it mean to become a son of light? And how do we avoid what seems to be a very precarious idea, the idea of walking in darkness and not knowing where you are going? To try to answer these questions and understand the, the opportunity to teach something that Jesus takes at the end, we have to consider the passage, but the passage is kind of odd, frankly. It almost feels as if John... John's throwing a bunch of things together. The subject changes frequently. It changes frequently as you go throughout it. That's hard to understand what really cements the passage together. I think there is something that John is doing artistically, but it's it's hard to see until it simmers for a little bit. But at the outset, a little bit of a framework may help you as we work through the passage. So, as you consider it, what happens is Jesus has a bit of a crisis. He he's troubled deeply in his soul about the road that he's about to go on and as a result of that, there's a revelation, a voice from heaven. And in response to that voice from heaven, there's misunderstanding. When Jesus offers more revelation, he explains who he is and what he's come to do. And after that, there's more misunderstanding. The people don't get it. And then Jesus launches into this bit about darkness and light. So what you have really is misunderstanding, revelation, misunderstanding, revelation, misunderstanding, darkness and light. Now that'll be important as we come back around, but let's, let's consider a little bit more in detail the passage at hand. Jesus, uh, as I said first, is experiencing a bit of a crisis. He uh, begins to look down the week that lies ahead. He has said that his hour has come, and he, uh, can, the, imagine the anguish, the tortured soul that he must experience. Why? Part of him, obviously, as even evidence in this passage, wants to do the will of the Father, his flesh is crying out for relief. I don't really want to go down this road. I don't want to pursue my death and what that entails. And so he he cries out to God. And John presents it to us um, interestingly and differently than the other synoptics. If you notice, Jesus seems to consider briefly, uh, yeah, should I ask God to save me from this? And then he quickly dismisses it. The reason that's a little bit interesting, a little bit odd, is that is the exact question that he asks in the synoptics on the Mount of Olives. Please take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. But yeah, please, if it can, if I can be saved from this, let's do that. And here Jesus seems to dismiss it. I think we can say at least that the week was probably a week of crisis and struggle for the Son of Man that we can't possibly fathom in which in his humanity he dreaded what was coming, in his divinity he was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father in ways we can't even understand. That gets played out in his person. But what a gruesome week, knowing what is coming and moving towards it, even in the midst of that. What's astonishing is as Jesus looks down this road, 
he decides not to simply ask to be saved from it. And in verse 28, instead he prays, Father, glorify thy name. In the midst of looking at his physical death, in the midst of looking at receiving the punishment for the world, in the midst of knowing probably in some sense that will cause him to be alienated by the Father, he doesn't pray to be saved at at this point, and he doesn't pray for an alternative course. He simply prays for the glory of the Father. I don't know about you, but I find that profoundly both astonishing and convicting. I pray for God to save me from this hour when there's a wreck on the bridge and traffic is backed up. I pray for God to save me from this hour when I have to spend time with people that I don't want to spend time with. I ask for God to save me from this hour when my children have me at my wit's end. My prayer is seldom when God might have me sit in a traffic jam or God might have me actually spend time with people who are difficult or when God allows my children's reign of disobedience to continue, in the midst of that, my prayer is not, Father, glorify your name. My prayer is far more often, God, what are you doing? I don't deserve this. Really, you should be busy about changing it. But as we see here, Jesus is facing something that we, can, we can't really possibly understand. And in the midst of that, his prayer is, Father, glorify your name. Even though I know that this is the surrendering of my physical life and the alienation, you will turn your back on me in the crucifixion uh, because I will take upon myself the sin of the world. I am uh, taking on the rule of the Passover lamb. Glorify your name. He entrusts himself wholly to the glory of the Father. Presumably that he knows that God's glory will be for his good. In the midst of this crisis, a voice comes, I think, somewhat graciously from heaven. God speaks to him, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, again, oddly, this passage is a bit odd for a number of reasons. The people don't seem to understand that there was a voice. Some say it was thunder. Others say, oh, I think an angel spoke to Jesus. But there's no evidence in the text that the people actually understood what was said. Presumably, Jesus had to relay it later to the disciples for John to record it. There's simply confusion over what has been communicated. And so what's the point of Jesus telling the crowd that the voice was for the crowd if the crowd didn't understand the voice? That's, I think, an important question. But it's one I'm going to leave for the moment. We're going to come back to it later. So God answers Jesus Christ as saying, I've glorified it, my name, probably referring to the incarnation, Jesus' entrance into the world. I'm going to glorify it again very shortly, probably referring to the resurrection. And uh, the people are confused. Was that thunder? Did an angel speak to him? What's going on? So Jesus goes on to explain. He says, this is what's happening. My presence here and that God is going to bring himself glory in my person means a number of things. It means that uh, the judgment is upon the world, that the ruler of the world will be cast out, that Jesus lifting up will draw all people to himself. Now this language, this language of 
salvation for humanity, this language of the ruler of this world being cast down and overthrown, this language of judgment being upon the world is all messianic language. It means that Jesus is ushering in this age of God's righteousness and his judgment and that he will make things right. But then the crowd is even more confused because they get in that last part about him being lifted up that Jesus is somehow referring to his death. And it's a little cloudy to us. Maybe they're also piecing together what Jesus has just said, which is a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die for there to be a harvest. Either way you look at it, they understand that in some sense, Jesus is referring to his death, and this is what confuses them. We get, we know about the Messiah, we know about the Son of Man, we get the Old Testament illusions here, we're excited about what's coming, but then you associate your death with it, and we don't have a framework for that. We don't associate the notion of death with Messiah and Son of Man. Again, leads them to the crowd to say, who is the Son of Man? We don't really, what are you putting out before us, Jesus? We don't really get how you're revealing this identity to us. So again, misunderstanding. And Jesus says, then takes opportunity to say, the light is among you for a little while longer. Verse 35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. What does Jesus' statement have to do with what's just transpired? Light and darkness with everything that has occurred just now. Well, if you pause for a moment, I think some clarity starts to, to come to the fore in the sense that John is, is taking Jesus' words and wants the people to wrestle with this notion of light and darkness. That he's going to spend a lot of time in it, on it in the rest of, of chapter 12. And in this idea, he's gone through this series of events in which you have Jesus wrestling with the road before him. Really, Jesus is, is, you see him saying, I want to ask to be saved from this hour, but I can't do that. I've come expressly for this hour. There's a, there's a challenge to his flesh to be faithful, to which God says, listen, I've glorified my name and I will do it again. Okay. So there's revelation. The people are confused. Was that thunder? Was an angel speaking to Jesus? We don't know really what's going on. There's misunderstanding to which Jesus says, Oh, here's some more revelation. I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to die. Which the people say, We don't get that. The Messiah is not supposed to die. So you have this series of revelation and misunderstanding, revelation and misunderstanding. And in a sense, if we would simply replace the word misunderstanding with darkness, I think we get an idea of what the picture that John is trying to paint. The darkness is ubiquitous, that it confuses us, that it makes God's revelation sometimes unclear because we understand the world by different terms. And John is, is, is walking us through this scene with which all of the characters are wrestling. I mean, Jesus is wrestling to some extent. And it is in part darkness, darkness that lies over the face of the world, darkness in which we are born into sin, we are born into a world that is broken by rebellion, and confused as a result of that, lacking understanding. Friends, when God himself takes on human flesh and stands in your midst right in front of you and reveals the very words of God to you, and people say, yeah, we don't really get who you are or what you're saying. We're not sure we believe you. That's darkness. It's a profound darkness. 
that Jesus comes to press through, of course, as the light. Our culture bears the same signs of darkness. The darkness that confuses the people in our passage, but the darkness that confuses us and so easily leads us astray and makes us make the same errors and exist in the same darkness that we even see portrayed here in John 12. Uh, very recently, Billy Joel was honored uh, with the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize. And there I was watching a bit of the footage of the gala, which brought a bunch of stars together to honor the singer-songwriter. And I found myself listening uh, for the first time in a very long time to uh, probably Joel's most famous song, Piano Man, which was butchered by most of the musicians who were gathered there. And very oddly, Kevin Spacey played the harmonica, which who knew? Uh, to the, the harmonica piece in uh, Piano Man. But again, it was the lyrics that caught my attention, and which go like this. Now John at the bar is a friend of mine. He gets me my drinks for free. He's quick with a joke or to light up your smoke, but there's some place that he'd rather be. He says, Bill, I believe this is killing me as a smile ran away from his face. Well, I'm sure that I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place. Now, Paul is a real estate novelist who never had time for a wife. He's talking with Davy, who's still in the Navy and probably will be for life. John is uh, the bartender, is really an actor, if he could just get out of the bar. And uh, Paul is an aspiring novelist. And Davy, although we would presume he would desire otherwise, will be in the Navy for life. And Joel sings that what's actually happening is that they're simply all sharing a drink they call that's called loneliness. Right? But the people in the midst of the song, they create this illusion, this kind of artificial light that gives them hope in the midst of their despair. And they cling to that as a way to actually hide the darkness which is actually going on in which they exist. Oh, it's only the circumstances that are holding me back. I'm really someone different. I could be invested in something else. It is a promise of salvation, so to speak, in the midst of their despair as they share that drink that buries the darkness in which they actually continue to exist. In some ways, I think that song could be a theme song for suburban Dallas culture. Our, our culture, the communities in we exist, are terribly, terribly committed to living in darkness. Remember, Jesus makes the charge that one of the problems with humanity is that we prefer darkness to light. I think that is very true of our hearts, that we go to great extents to facilitate our ongoing place in darkness rather than to embrace light. That is in part evidenced by our incredible propensity to lie. A recent study by the University of Massachusetts found that 60% of adults could not have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. The same study found that 40% of people lie on resumes. 90% of those looking for a date online lie. Teenage girls lie more than any other group, which is attributed to peer pressure. I guess we're just going to beat up on teenage girls this morning. (laughs) Attributed to peer pressure and expectation. Uh, Most people lie about little things to make them look good. So a fascinating example, a study was done of uh, back in the day when there were rental companies for videos, film rentals, 
found that 30% of respondents lied about having seen The Godfather. Because it's a classic film, and we assume that everyone has seen it, people feel like they need to say that they've seen it too. Otherwise, they're not as cultured, or they're not as informed. And so they lie and say, oh yes, of course I've seen that. And so over and over again, ways in which we actually lie to shape reality so that there's not light, there's not truth, but so that we can feel better about the darkness in which we exist. Notice what's common between Billy Joel's song and all the statistics on lying is that lying is a way to facilitate darkness. Right? The lies that we tell manage reality. They change the presentation of reality so that we don't actually have to engage light and truth. We can continue to exist in the darkness with which we're comfortable or with which we think we're more comfortable than the light that might actually set us free. It's our fallen tendency to love darkness. How do we move into the light? You know, earlier in the sermon, I raised the question, which I've thought about a little bit this week, which is, um, you've got this the very odd scenario where the voice from heaven comes, and nobody gets it. And Jesus says, this was for you, not for me. And you think, well, why was it for them if they didn't get to really hear the audible voice? What's going on there? Well, I think in a sense, it is very much what we've said. It is for the opportunity that later it will be disclosed. And looking back, John can both present this for the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection, that saying, look, we didn't know how much in darkness we were. This is what was actually being revealed from heaven, and we didn't get it at all. I think it's intended in that sense for us as well, to be a reminder of how much in darkness we can be and not recognize the light. But I don't think, and while I think in that sense, the audible utterance that something occurred that everyone noted was for the crowd, I don't think the message was strictly for the crowd. Remember, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. He's going, he's in the midst of his last week, and he knows the road ahead of him, and he has this internal struggle of, I desire to be rescued. I desire to be saved. What's about to happen to me isn't happening because I deserve it. You know, he's the only man in the history of the world who can actually say that. It's not happening because I deserve it. It's happening because I'm willingly laying my life down for others. Is there a note in the troubling of Jesus' souls? How is this going to end? What's going to happen? How is this story actually going to play out? Now, we don't know to what extent Jesus knew everything in his humanity and how that all mixed up. But there's a trouble on his soul for what he's facing. And the Father, I think, says something that's intended to comfort him. He says, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it in the incarnation I brought... You, you, you've willingly come into the world, we've affected that, and now we're about to handle sin and death through your death and resurrection. But I will glorify my name again, which must mean that Jesus' story can't end in death. Because how would God receive glory in that story of one dying, of being, of being put under the spell of death when he did not deserve it? 
He did not deserve any penalty for his sin. No, the story must then end in some kind of vindication and resurrection that God says, yes, I will glorify my name again. And an opportunity for Jesus to trust that, yes, that is the promise that will see him through, that he will trust in God's glorifying his name and the glory of God's name will mean his good because God will always be perfect and true and faithful. How do we then move into the light with any kind of courage as we see that Jesus represents here? Well, thank goodness he, that courage is on our behalf that we don't have to in the way that Jesus does because he rescues us in this very act. But it is also opportunity for us to say, oh, what the promise that is made to Jesus is also made to us as we are unified to him by his spirit. As the father says to Jesus, yeah, I have glorified my name. I will glorify it again. He says to us as well. I've glorified my name, I've glorified it in Christ's resurrection, and I will glorify it again in your resurrection. Because you are unified to the one who has paid for your sins. And it's that truth, it's that reality, it's that act of love then that begins to break in and say, oh, the darkness that I'm clinging to isn't actually comfort, it's the love of the one who would allow me to be included in that glory and in that goodness that can actually set me free from the darkness and to move into the light. What does that look like for you? How are you loving the darkness? Boys and girls, we've talked a a little bit. One example is lying. It's not telling the truth. And are you lying right now to your parents? Are you telling lies or hiding the truth so that they don't know? And in that way, you are participating in darkness and not in light. Now, the point isn't that you would be scared or that you would feel terrible, but that you would hear an opportunity that that Jesus, knowing all of this, has laid down his life for you and challenges you to walk in the light. And in that, in moving out of the lies and telling the truth, is the freedom of, of living in the light. And grown-ups do the same thing, boys and girls. They lie. We lie a lot. We lie all the time to um, to change the appearance under which we live. I read this and I forgot to. Uh, it's some. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to ballpark it. It's a crazy statistic, but something like seventy percent of Facebook pages falsely represent the person. In other words, they have put up intentionally an image of something that they have done or something they describe which they didn't do, or isn't them, or they weren't there, to create an image, to facilitate a darkness in which they feel comfortable rather than moving into the light. Perhaps this is something that you are participating in. What are you doing in secret? And I don't mean in secret by not telling anybody. In secret, like I bought a present and I'm not telling the person I bought it for. I mean, when no one's around, what do you do? You sneak to the cupboard where the bottle is hidden and have that extra glass. Or do you finally find your way to your phone and your computer and look at something that you shouldn't be looking at? This too is darkness. Or the lies that we tell ourselves that, yes, I just, I really deserve this. Or I've saved up for this. And we, we say things that sound so good 
And at the end of the day, they're just lies that excuse things like greed. Is that your darkness? You alone know your heart and know how you are loving the darkness rather than the light. And I make two challenges to you this morning. If you're serious about moving into the light, some of you aren't. Some of you are very content in your darkness and you love your darkness more than your light. And I'm sad for you because you will never know freedom until you come to Christ and actually give up those things. So if you're interested in that, there are two things that you can do that will help. Number one is to actually confess it to someone, to actually bring it into the light that it light shines on it, and that people can come around you and love you in the midst of that darkness to help you come out of it. That's really the first step. You know, over the years I've seen many people who have struggled with various kinds of darkness, and at this point, after 10 years, if someone comes in and says, yeah, I've got this darkness, and I say, you need to confess it, and they say, I'm not ready to do it, I'll say, okay, come back when you're serious. Because you're not ready to give it up. You love it too much. Secondly, if you are in the process of confessing, then really the next step on the road of Christian maturity, and this is hard. I've done this. I know some of you have done it, and it's sometimes hard to hear, but to go to someone you trust and respect, you think is godly, and say, where do you see darkness in my life that I don't see? You'd be surprised. People sometimes see things that you are totally oblivious of, that you have an enormous blind spot, and they bring that into the light. But then it's opportunity as well to deal with that. And in that, as we, I mean, just consider for a moment, if we become a community that becomes serious about moving out of darkness and walking in light, believing in the light and becoming sons of light as Jesus exhorts his followers in this passage, we would be the most radical community on earth. A community of truth tellers, unashamed of the truth, embracing one another in the midst of the truth, and loving one another, that we might be free of the darkness. May Christ and His strength to glorify the Father's name, and the Spirit and mercy to our weakness, strengthen us to this task as we come to the table. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are sorry that we have introduced darkness to this world. We pray that you would free us and move us into the light. Father, we pray, confessing that we all have um, darkness and things that we keep hidden. Let us be a people and a community in which brings the hidden into the light, not so that we might feel better about ourselves and not that we might condemn one another or beat up on one another, but that we might be characterized by such radical love that you embracing us, even though we were your enemies and necessitated the cross, let us embrace one another in the same fashion, holding close our enemies and loving them to the extent that the darkness is diminished. And we thank you for the promise that the light will not, the darkness will not triumph over the light. We pray that you would nourish us at your table this morning. In Christ's name, amen.